Hey listeners, stick around at the end of the podcast for a little more specific details about a certain bill and some public comment that you can submit in Ohio for what uh, Dr. Art is going to talk about on this podcast. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Dr. Dan Arndt. Dr. Arndt is assistant professor at the University of Cincinnati and a graduate from the University of Toledo, Go Rockets, my, also my alma mater. Dr. Arndt, I had you on the podcast or wanted you on the podcast today because you've been involved quite a bit with some things regarding the opioid crisis. Uh, specifically, recently, you actually reached out to our state board of pharmacy about a new idea you had to help fight the opioid crisis here in our state in Ohio, which for those listeners who don't know, was one of the hardest impacted states when it comes to the opioid crisis. Can you elaborate on kind of what you presented to the state board and kind of what their thoughts were on it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and first off, I just want to thank you, uh, Eric, for inviting me onto the podcast. So how I ended up contacting the state board kind of goes back and ties into uh, my position at the University of Cincinnati. So really what I was brought in to do is work in pain stewardship and kind of build the idea of pain stewardship and build the same type of model that has worked so successfully across the country in terms of ID stewardship. Everyone knows ID stewardship, everyone participates in it, and there's just a culture around that specialty. And the idea is to really kind of bring that same mindset to pain management services. So how that kind of transitions into contact in the state board is one of the things we're working on is making sure that if we're gonna be working at uh, pain stewardship and uh, improving pain management, the flip side of things needs to be that we're improving access to medications that reduce the harm uh, and negative consequences of opioid use. And then we're improving access to treatment for patients with opioid use disorder. Uh, so one of our initiatives is really to uh, have an alert just going off in Epic to let providers know when patients are on high risk uh, doses of opioids or if they're on opioids and concomitant medications like benzodiazepines that increase the overdose risk to encourage those providers or those pharmacists who are verifying scripts that that patient would potentially be a good candidate for naloxone. Um, all the data that we see out there in regards to naloxone availability has shown that the more naloxone that's available to patients, the lower number of opioid fatalities you actually see due to overdose. And the flip side of that coin is a lot of people have always been concerned that the more accessible naloxone is, the more you enable people and actually you'll see overall opioid use go up. But in reality, that's actually never been seen, shown to be the case. And the data really shows that there's no change overall in opioid use, and there's solely a decrease in the, in the fatality of opioid overdoses. So when we were talking about having this alert be flagged in Epic, and I can't take credit for that. That was actually one of our fantastic residents um, and then another pain steward. But when they were talking about this program, I was really thinking to myself, this, this really should exist already. You know what I mean? It's yeah. something like something as simple as, uh, when people are on opioids and they're at high risk of overdosing on them, even without misusing them, we should be giving them and their family the, the antidote to, to save them if that becomes, becomes life-threatening. That's something that should be being done everywhere. And then I thought to myself, how do we 
we can't go to every individual health system and make sure that they're doing this or go to every individual pharmacy. And then I kind of had the thought of, well, we have ORS in the state of Ohio. We have this incredible prescription drug monitoring program that pharmacists and and, uh, prescribers everywhere are using. And if we could tap into that resource as a way to increase that knowledge of when naloxone would be appropriate for patients, we could hopefully increase that accessibility of naloxone and how many patients that could benefit from having it on board actually do have it or have a family member who has it with them. So really the way that I went about it was I simply, it's kind of funny, I actually just emailed the support line at ORS. As ridiculous as that sounds, I just went on the ORS website where it said contact us, and I think it was just customer support or something like that. And I just sent them an oddly formal email about an idea for harm reduction and utilizing ORS. And to my surprise, I think within a day, I had an email back with some correspondence and a potential meeting with uh, three of the members of the State Board of Pharmacy, which was really kind of crazy to me. And so I met with them uh, this past week, and we chatted about that idea and kind of went over it. And I was really impressed and amazed by how responsive they were to just a, a lowly professor's email about some ideas for harm reduction in the state of Ohio. You know what's funny about that is, and I found this with this podcast too. A lot of times, random emails actually work, and in this case, I think it's a I think it's a good idea that you sent the state board this one, and was whether it was via the prescription drug monitoring program or what have you. Nearly every state has one of those, so this is something that if listeners like what we're talking about, they can they can submit this to their state board, or hopefully, maybe our state can kind of lead the way with this a little bit. But the the thing that I kind of found interesting is is that you're looking at this as like a pop up alert or some sort of like button alert that will notify the people who are checking the prescription drug monitoring program. The thing that I've noticed and why I think the way you brought it up is really good from a pharmacist perspective was that it seems like a lot of the providers and prescribers aren't the ones who are using ORS as much as they should. But almost every pharmacist I know checks ORS every single time, especially since a lot of the major chains now have it integrated into their computer program with a simple click of a button. I know where I work, I can click a button, it pops up in three to five seconds, and I can see right there what their their score is, their risk of overdose. If they're on benzos, if they're on opioids, if they're on other drugs we know like Soma that are kind of grouped together with those for the abuse and misuse. So I really think this is a, a great idea for some of this is because it's a good way to kind of use the leverage we have as pharmacists and the access we have to the supply of drugs like naloxone to really sit there and have those conversations with somebody. And also, since you know a lot of states now have provider status in the individual state, they can start reimbursing through a Medicaid program to help those people who are at high risk, who are on maybe the lower end of the of the scale, but to help you know to keep those people hopefully working and and productive members of society because they they can't be working or productive if they overdose on a medication like this. Absolutely. And I think uh, you, you bring up a really interesting point, and that's really there's kind of two sides to this, to this equation. And there's the prescribing side, and then there's the uh, verification and dispensing side. And I think both are really where we need to tackle it. Um, and one of the things that I actually did not know before kind of getting involved in this uh, program was that the uh, – Ohio State Medical Board actually requires physicians to prescribe or not necessarily prescribe, but at least offer naloxone to patients um, who have a history of opioid overdose, who have a concurrent substance use disorder, 
or on high doses of opioids or on lower doses with uh, other concomitant medications like benzodiazepines or soma or gabapentin, things like you talked about. So there's actually specific uh, requirements for the physicians about what they need to be offering. And I really wouldn't be shocked if we start seeing this kind of transfer into the pharmacy side of things and saying we need to be offering our patients medication uh, or, or naloxone in this instance because it's, it's really a best practice. And although right. it's something that hasn't been known everywhere by physicians and hasn't necessarily been fully integrated into practice, it's really just kind of what's saying, let's get ahead of this and get ahead of the game and start doing this now even before it's required. And then kind of like you mentioned how most states have a prescription drug monitoring program like this, like ours. So the idea here is one to say, Ohio's been fairly progressive in terms of uh, ORS and fighting the opioid epidemic. And part of that is just in fact, to due, due in part to the fact that uh, Ohio's been such a hub of the opioid epidemic. I mean, right. from, from my perspective in Cincinnati, I mean, we, we've seen so much of it. And so our kind of role is to say, we, we see so much of this problem that we need to be the voices and advocates for change to, to help solve this crisis. So we can integrate these types of things in Ohio and then study them, see how they work, see if they're effective. And if they are, m- most states are going to be able to follow that. And it's, it's the hope of saying, we can do this in Ohio, but Ohio is not the goal. The goal is to help reduce overdoses everywhere. And if we can pilot those types of programs here and make them into something successful that uh, ultimately decreases deaths nationwide, I think that would be obviously an incredible, incredible success. So uh, that's, that, that's yet to be seen, obviously, but uh, kind of the starting point for what we hope can be a, a very successful program. Yeah, Ohio is pretty early, if I remember correctly, on the the online prescription drug monitoring programs and every state has it except Missouri currently, which is its own little oddball of things that it has. But it, I know Missouri is the only one that doesn't have that currently, unless that just changed in the past couple of weeks. I'm not aware of it, but kind of walking back a few things you said there, the one interesting thing, and I know maybe this is just me being a little Ohio centric with myself where I live and work, but Ohio really is a good place to test this stuff out because we have extreme rural parts and we also have extreme urban parts and the income goes from all across the board just as well. We have, I mean, we have some people on Forbes list who live in Ohio, believe it or not, who are some of the richest people in the world. And we also have some of the poorest people in some of the inner cities and some of the rural areas, as well as farmers, Amish, you name it. Like we're kind of all across the board with that. So it's a good scattershot picture of, you know, how we could implement things all across the country, in my opinion. The other thing is, you know, as pharmacists, one thing we didn't mention was that we're like one hell of an access point for so many people because we have longer hours in doctor's offices. Obviously, we have a medication on our shelves, and it's just, you know, that access to it. We can put ourselves in those smaller communities, not necessarily in the bigger cities around, you know, huge health hubs and things like that where you uh, live and work in Cincinnati or I live and work around Cleveland. We have huge hospitals, but that doesn't help somebody in, you know, the southern, more rural part of Ohio. Also, the other thing you mentioned there is that I don't think most prescribers realize that they're required to offer that, which could be a, a failing on you know their medical board or you know if it's the nurse practitioner board, whoever does these licenses 
for these practitioners because the only times I see people who are offered something like naloxone regularly are from pretty chronic pain clinics that I'll be honest, have less than reputable, uh, less than reputable standing in the community other than the fact that they basically give naloxone with every single prescription and the patients rarely pick it up. You know, like I basically have a rule in my pharmacy, like, Hey, once every six months, you got to pick it up just because I want to make sure you have it at home. It's in date and that access because the amount of opioids you're taking. So that's just kind of something I do at my practice. And my, my staff loves that because that, that way we know that, Hey, we're not just protecting ourselves. We're protecting them or people around them as well. Kind of the other thing that you mentioned previously, I didn't get to was, People are worried that if naloxone access increases, that people are gonna you're gonna see more overdoses because they know they have that to fall back on. But I don't think anyone actually goes out looking to intentionally overdose on opioids. I think this is more of like the uh, the crutch, if you will, if it gets to that point. This isn't like a toy that they're gonna say, "Oh, how much can I take?" Then have to need naloxone for. This is something that we want out there because the more we have it out there, the more access there is to help avoid this. Is that kind of what you were getting at with some of that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the thing that I always kind of go back to is is no one no one wants to be addicted to to opioids or, or drugs at all. Right. No one wa- goes out and wants to be addicted. No one wants to overdose. No one's going to see. Oh, I can get uh, access to Narcan, so now it is uh, I'm going to go use drugs because I have a fail safe there. That's that's really not the case. And I know there's been some concern with that, but really the data that has not shown that to be true. That's one of the big, that's one of the big concerns is, is a, a histor- historical pattern uh, really in medicine of kind of what I call it's not my definition or term, but what's kind of called medical paternalism. And it's this idea that sometimes we think that giving patients too much access to things or too much knowledge um, will actually enable them in a way where they make decisions that are poor uh, for their overall health. And I think time and time again, we really learn that we need to trust patients better uh, and more than we really do on the grand scheme, in the grand scheme of things, because more often than, than not, they make the right decisions for themselves. We, they're, we're not necessarily enabling them to start using drugs. We're just enabling them to not die from it. And that's such an important distinction to, to think about whenever we're talking about, oh, by giving them access to something that will help them, are we actually encouraging bad behavior? And most of the time when we're talking about things, it really doesn't end up working out that way. Um, so I think that's just kind of something important to uh, remember when we talk about not only Narcan, but just overall harm reduction efforts um, and anything that goes to uh, prevention of the negative consequences for, for substance use. It's one of those things where it's going to happen regardless, and it's it's something that's unfortunate and that people struggle with. But if we can lessen those consequences and keep keep those people alive until they're able to seek care and get the help that they need, then that's a win because people will eventually seek that care. The problem is they don't always make it to the point where they're in that space where they're they're going to be able to do that. And in my view harm reduction and getting them to that is an important aspect of healthcare. We always talk about uh, healthcare as uh, a model that is sustainable because we don't prevent disease, we treat disease, and we don't do enough upfront. And harm reduction and access to naloxone is really the opposite approach. It's saying, how do we prevent these deaths? How do we get access to the public, help them help themselves, and then get them to the point where we can actually intervene and make serious adjustments to their healthcare? Yeah, and the the kind of the way that I'm seeing or the way I'm interpreting the way you're saying this is I look at it like condoms, right? 
and maybe this is a bad analogy, but if you want, you know, less unwanted kids, less kids in foster care, less other, you know, more contentious things to go on in the world, um, you give people condoms and then they don't have kids. They don't have those situations because, you know, people are going to have sex the same way people are going to overdose. It's unfortunately something people are going to do. We can't stop it. We just need to make sure that there's a safety net there to fall back on. Is that kind of like a an easy analogy, if you will? Absolutely. And I actually, I typically use a similar analogy, actually, and with without the goal of getting too controversial or anything. <laughs> yeah. There's the idea of like abstinence only sex education in schools. And it's been shown time and time again that abstinence only education doesn't necessarily uh, work that well. And it's better to actually have honest discussions with uh, students and, and kids and talk about the risks and uh, access to, to condoms and birth control and things like that, as you said, and you see better results that way. And it's the same kind of concept. If you just, if you go and say, don't, don't use drugs, they're bad. I mean, is that an accurate statement that you don't want them to use drugs? Absolutely. But that's not going to stop it. So if I can keep you alive to the point where I can help you get off of them, that's a win. If I can get you to not ever start them, that is the, uh, the best possible case but once someone started the goal is how do we get them off and that's really the thing that sometimes takes time exactly and you know the one thing that kind of step regressing back a minute to what your original topic here was about kind of talking with the state board at least in ohio putting this into our prescription drug monitoring program what were some of the details that you were kind of looking to see there just an alert that would pop up to the pharmacist like a a radio button they click yes or no i counsel them or yes or no i feel this is appropriate kind of what was that one step you were looking for so that pharmacists could document this annotate it and possibly get compensated for dispensing and or counseling services yeah so i mean there's a couple different uh possibilities there and with, in the efforts of, of full transparency, I'm not someone who practices in the community setting. Um, so I'm, I'm coming at it from uh, someone who's been practicing in the hospital. Uh, so in that regard, uh, I mean, I've, I've, for example, I reached out to you a little bit actually before I uh, met with the board, but I've reached out to some other community pharmacists to see what is a solution that increases access to care but also is something that isn't going to drive our pharmacists crazy and make their lives more difficult. Right. Um, that, that's so key really, here too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because if people don't like it or it bugs them or it makes their life miserable trying to deal with all these extra alerts, it's not going to get done. So it needs to be something that's impactful. People see the importance of it and it's not something that impacts their day-to-day life terribly. Um, so there's kind of a couple different aspects. So this could look a couple different ways. This could be an alert that pops up to say, hey, this is a patient that meets this criteria. Uh, you should offer them naloxone. It could be um, simply another box on the screen. Um, like right now they have the uh, overdose risk uh, score, and there could be um, some more specific criteria in relation to the naloxone alert that kind of comes up right on the screen is very easy to see that just says this patient should be offered naloxone could have potentially a I'm going to offer them naloxone checkbox that pharmacists could actually put in that could then suppress that alert to say oh I, I offered them naloxone so please don't fire this alert to bug me again in the next uh, six months or, or a year or, or whatever it might be. There's, there's a lot of different angles that we could come at. And really the, the most important thing is, uh, one, after talking with the state board, it's feasible. Um, it's likely feasible. So we're meeting with 
uh, with IT and seeing how exactly it's going to happen or what would be the best approach. And then really my next step is to say, okay, let me be meeting with pharmacists and figure out uh, specifically what's going to make it be the best tool that's actually helpful and doesn't drive all of my colleagues in community pharmacy mad and make them hate me for <laughs> suggesting <laughs> such an idea. So yeah. there's a couple there's a couple different uh, strategies there because I also know alert fatigue is real and we see it yes. in the hospital and we see it everywhere is just the more alerts you get for things that really aren't important, the more likely you are to skip through an alert for something that is important. So we want to make sure that this doesn't fall victim to that. And it's something that is utilized, but not something that bugs either our healthcare professionals or our patients. Because if you're, if you're a patient and every time you pick up your script, you're being offered it and you have, you have it at home, you have to have that same conversation or there are certain, certainly patients that would likely get offended by it if they were getting offered it every single month um, or something like that. And we need to be, be wary of that. And that also goes back to kind of the other aspect of things. And you kind of alluded to it a little bit is we might not be fully complying to these uh, requirements of offering the lockdown everywhere from a prescribing standpoint. And a lot of it has to do with education and education needs to be really done both on the healthcare professional level and on the patient level. I think, as healthcare professionals, the importance of the lockdown is known, but it's not really hammered home how important it is for our patients that aren't even misusing their opioid prescriptions. It's just important for those patients who are, they can be taking everything by the book, but as you're increasing doses, as there's concomitant meds and disease state changes, things like that, it becomes more important even for patients that have no issue with substance use. And then from a patient perspective, I think there needs to be some education about the about uh, Narcan and naloxone and, and what its uses are and its importance because there's unfortunately a lot of stigma. Uh, there's stigma with opioid use itself, but there's stigma with naloxone as well. And there's myths surrounding it and there's concern and, oh, I don't want to use that. That's for someone who's abusing drugs and that's not me. But really that patient education to get them to understand it. No, that's for your own safety. It's something that we're concerned about because it's a risk of these medications. And it's something that uh, we think would be helpful for you or your family to have on hand. So education is kind of the other complementary piece. It's, we can have all the alerts or tools in the world, but if people don't know how to use them and, and appreciate the importance of them, if we don't have that open dialogue between our patients and our providers, really it's going to be set up to fail. So it's kind of a, a approaching the problem at, at really all levels and seeing how we can systematically make some changes. Yeah, exactly. And I, th man, the education piece is huge. I've had so many times where I have a little lady who comes in who's on a high dose of pain meds and she's also got a benzo or ambient for sleep. And sometimes, you know, I'll go over and talk to them and I'm like, Hey, you know, you should really consider having naloxone around. And they're like, Oh, I don't misuse it. I'm like, well, you know, you're a couple of days early now and then that is what it is. But you know, what if happens if, you know, your grandchild or somebody is over and accidentally gets a hold of your pill bottles? Like, you know, time is of the essence here. If I can buy you five minutes, I can buy you five minutes with this. That and then and not that I'm like trying to sell this or use it as a pitch, but just as a general lookout for public health, right? And so many times they go, Oh, I didn't think about that. Is it covered in my insurance? Yes, it's covered. Here you go. I feel a lot better. You feel a lot better. And then hopefully anyone who's around you knows you know knows about it so that if they are exposed they can use this to help themselves or somebody around them as well yeah absolutely i'm a i'm a massive uh proponent 
of the idea that really everyone who is in a situation where they know someone who's chronically using opioids or at risk of overdosing, or if they work in a place where they're likely to see an overdose, or they live in a place where they're likely to see an overdose, I encourage them to, to carry naloxone with them. It's actually something that I carry on my person. I have one in my car and I keep one on me because I live now in, in the city and I, I see these types of things and these types of risks and I, I want to be, be there because when you talk about naloxone, it's really something incredible because it's something that when it's given, when you see someone overdosing and it's given, it is life-saving. Yep. It's, there, there's no if, if, ands, or buts about it. It is a medication that will save a life if used uh, when someone needs it. And having it on hand is, just like you said, it, it buys you that time. It's that time you need to get someone to the hospital. And that's so crucial. And people's lives matter. Just eat, whether it's someone who's overdosing from their actual prescription or even if it's someone who's misusing opioids and overdosing that distinction isn't important what matters is that we're able to save that life and and help them get their keep their life and and get back on track and that's why naloxone is so crucial and i guess to your point and when you mentioned that you're not trying to sell it or anything i should say i have no financial or uh, (laughs) any other uh relations with any manufacturers or anything i i make no uh, profit or money or anything from anything naloxone based. I'm just a huge proponent of it because I've seen the massive impact that opioids can have on a family, on, on family, on friends, all throughout communities. Um, and they can be, they can be life saving. Uh, they can provide relief to terrible, terrible pain and be something that will change your life for the better. And they can be life altering in, in the worst possible way. There, it's a very powerful group of medications. And as a, as a society and as healthcare professionals, it's really uh, our job and one that I'm kind of focused on to say, how do we make sure that we are using these for those life-saving purposes and, and those life-changing purposes? And we're really limiting the negative consequences that it's going to have because it can really, it can really be brutal. Yeah. Yeah, for certain, especially because, you know, everyone means something to someone else. Just because that person who overdosed doesn't mean something to you doesn't mean that they don't have a daughter at home, you know, a parent at home, brother, sister, someone like that, who they mean the world to, you know, that's just the way it is. People are people, no matter, no matter where you are in life. Digressing to something that's a little bit more positive or upbeat, if you will. Recently, you also joined the Hamilton County Addiction Response Coalition. I didn't even know such things necessarily existed. And I consider myself pretty pretty up to date on all the stuff that goes on in my area. Can you elaborate kind of like what that is and kind of like what you're looking to do with the future with them or what other people can look to do with the future with like their local county, maybe addiction response coalitions? Yeah. The organization is the Hamilton County Addiction Response Coalition, as you mentioned. And I, I really, uh, to, to be in the eyes of transparency, I've, I've just recently joined, but I'm looking to immediately be as involved as possible and have reached out to, uh, leaders within the organization and I'm, I'm already starting to come up with uh, different ideas and game plans for what we can do but a little bit about what that coalition does is really they are involved in monitoring the opioid epidemic in our community throughout our county and coming up with a variety of strategies and approaching it um, and seeing how we can reduce the consequences of addiction and opioid use 
So we have a few different committees. There's a committee that focuses on prevention efforts and education and how we can hopefully prevent people from misusing opioids or becoming addicted in the first place. There is a uh, committee specifically focused on treatment programs and how we can actually get people into treatment that they need. There's a faith committee. There's a business committee that looks at how we can get local businesses involved and everything. And then one of the areas that I'm really starting to get more involved in and, and will be getting more involved in as time progresses here, as I'm spending more and more time uh, after moving down to Cincinnati, is the Harm Reduction Committee and looking at what we can do to essentially keep these people alive, but also reduce any other negative consequences that can come from that opioid use so that when we're able to finally get them into that treatment program and get them off of these uh, medications, that they're in a position where they've gotten through it and they're able to come out on the other side without HIV. They don't have hepatitis C. They don't have a ton of medical bills because they were admitted for endocarditis. Looking at all these different aspects of opioid use and really trying to just improve patient care at that level. So one of the things that I thought was really incredible that they've uh, been doing is they've, one, been tracking deaths due to unintentional overdose throughout the entire county. And one of the things that I thought was the most, like, incredibly interesting that they actually have is specifically what these unintentional overdoses are being caused by. And they've actually been tracking it and graphing it over years and years and years, going back to 2009. And what we're really seeing is that overdoses, unintentional overdoses, are down since 2017. But what's really crazy to me is that heroin-related overdoses right now in Hamilton County are actually lower than they were before the epidemic really was declared an epidemic. They've gone down drastically. The vast, vast majority of unintentional opioid overdoses are due to fentanyl. Uh, and right. what's even more crazy to me is not only are heroin overdoses down, cocaine overdoses are coming down, and the variety of and and uh, the majority of Cocaine overdoses, 87% of unintentional fatal overdoses on cocaine are actually due to fentanyl as well. So that is such a huge problem. And it's becoming a thing where even someone who isn't abusing opioids may be someone who benefits from naloxone because unfortunately, uh, this is an extremely powerful drug that is getting into and contaminating other drug supplies and becoming even more of an issue. So you have patients that are or you have people that are, are using cocaine, but then they're unfortunately dying of a fentanyl overdose. So they're really looking at a lot of different uh, areas. One of them uh, being syringe services programs. So they have uh, pop-up tents where they'll have clean needles that they can exchange, drug users can exchange to get clean needles so that they're not uh, sharing syringes or reusing them and it reduces the risk of endocarditis, HIV, hepatitis C, um, and then they also have done this really incredible texting service where if you are in Hamilton County and you text 22999, if you just text them Narcan, you'll get immediate information on your phone as to where you can either, either go to receive and get Narcan or you can even take an online survey explaining why you're, why you're asking for Narcan and it will be mailed uh, directly to you. Oh, wow. Uh, 
simply by picking up your phone without even having to go anywhere. They also have that same uh, program for texting them harm reduction, and it'll give you information on where their pop-up syringe exchanges will be on any given day. So there's a lot of really incredible uh, programs that they're really coming out with. And really where I'm looking to get involved is one, just seeing how we can continue to expand these efforts, making them even more accessible uh, to patients. And then one area that I find really interesting is, is one, combining them with their, combining this program with ORS and how we can actually work in the healthcare setting specifically to have harm reduction programs and, and have access both by a partnership from the community as well as pharmacies and hospitals and physicians offices all throughout the county. And then the other thing I'm interested in is potentially looking at fentanyl test strips. And there's some interesting pilot data uh, coming out of Canada in regards to having patients have access to test strips where they're able to actually test their drug supply for fentanyl. Because again, hmm. as I mentioned, the vast majority of these deaths are due to fentanyl, not necessarily due to heroin or cocaine. And that partnered with the increased access to naloxone, I think could have a dramatic effect on overdose deaths. Now, when I say that I want to make sure I express the fact that that's not officially proven that that would have that effect on a large scale, that's my hypothesis, right. but there's some uh, promising data coming out there. And what they found is even by surveying drug users and heroin users and saying, if you had access to a fentanyl test strip and you tested your supply and it came back as having fentanyl, what would you do? Uh, because that was the other aspect. Of, oh, well, was someone going to actually throw it out? And unfortunately, most of them said they'd still use that drug supply, but they would cut their dose significantly to make sure that they weren't using too much because they know it's more potent. I think that's really important. Uh, that's obviously not the perfect uh, answer that I would love to hear. I would love to hear that they wouldn't use that supply, but if that's something where that lower dose is going to prevent them from overdosing or encourage them to uh, have a family member have Narcan because they're able to access it and they know that they have a contaminated sample, whatever it might be, again, it all goes back to just buying time until we're able to get to that person and, and treat them the way that we know we eventually can. Um, and I think it's just so crucial. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing there is you said a lot of these deaths with fentanyl related are also tied to cocaine. When you think of somebody who's using a drug like that, you're thinking more, at least for me, rich, upper white class people, as opposed to when you see what is usually depicted when it comes to heroin and things like that, you think lower income, shady, grungy, like that type of thing. So it's a very different dynamic there. And I'm not saying that one's better than the other, but it just, it kind of resets your mind of who's actually affected by this, which I think is kind of key here for a lot of this because it, it doesn't have to, it could be anybody. It could be someone who's fallen on tough times. Somebody you don't realize it could be a celebrity. It can be a nobody. It can be whoever. I think if anything that holds true is that time and time again, the pattern with this, although a little bit predictable is not exactly predictable. And therefore we need to kind of make sure that like you said, the more we educate people on it, the more access we have to it, the more people we're going to save in that process. Absolutely. And it's something where addiction, addiction doesn't discriminate nope. and anyone can fall victim to it. Um, and anyone, everyone is at, at risk of it. So it's one of those things where you can't put a label on someone who's at risk for uh, overdosing and someone who's not. Um, it's just, it's everywhere, unfortunately. Um, and the risks are there. And uh, despite those risks, again, 
people are going to to use drugs. We we yep. know that they are going to do it. So if we can help those people, because those are our patients just as much as anyone else is our patients. I know there's there's so much stigma, unfortunately, with uh, addiction and with treatment for addiction uh, that really doesn't deserve to be there. These are our patients just as much as any of our other patients with uh, diabetes or lung cancer or heart failure or hypertension, you name it, the same thing. These are our patients. And the problem with it is that a lot of times the treatment that is required to adequately treat someone who has an opioid addiction um, isn't the same as what's required for someone who has diabetes or hypertension or heart failure. And it's hard to get out of that same mindset of doing what we always done. And I think one of the things we see with that is we see so many high, so, so, uh, such high rates of people leaving against medical advice after an opioid overdose. And part of that is um, due to the fact that they're in withdrawal and agitated and whatnot. Part of that is also that uh, what we're doing is really not based upon what that specific patient is going to need and the type of environment that they're going to need versus the trauma patient or the uh, heart failure or pneumonia patient or COVID patient currently. Um, and it, it's just taking a different approach to say, what can we do? And let's forget the stigma. Let's forget all the previous barriers and say, if your goal at the end of the day is just to make that patient's life better and that patient's care better, how are you going to do it? And what's going to effectively work? And that's really the goal of, of harm reduction in these types of programs is to it's to remove all that bias and just to say, okay, this is a human being that's suffering. How do we help improve their lives? And what can we do to keep them safe? And yep. that's really the, the premise of all of it. Yeah, and stigma could be a whole nother episode, maybe at a later date, because you hit some awesome points on Twitter with that. Um, I know just, just today you threw one up that I thought was a good twist on it. But before we end this podcast, I got to ask you two questions that I ask everybody when it co- who comes on here. So if you could change one thing about pharmacy in general, what would it be? I think there is a, a major issue in pharmacy in terms of being able to practice at the top of our license. And I'm, I'm not getting into the weeds in terms of expanding scope of practice or anything like that. I'm talking about specifically what are what the top of our license is and what we're trained effectively to do. And I think a lot of times we have a lot of pharmacists that really aren't able to practice at the top of their license because of restrictions that are in place in terms of payment model or staffing hours structure. And I think a lot of that, unfortunately, all comes back to that same issue with billing models and payment models and reimbursement. And there's a huge challenge for pharmacists, both in the community setting in the inpatient setting, on the floors in the hospital, it's something that's kind of universally shared by pharmacists is we have this issue of not being able to get billed for our services. And because of that, when we're trying to do things that are service-based and education-based and using our knowledge to help patients, it's something that we have to generate by saying, I'm going to save you money. And we have to talk to our business executives about uh, soft dollars and saying, oh, it's going to prevent this and it's going to encourage this. Um, but it's so hard to get those approved because, again, it's not specific money in their pocket. And yeah. it's unfortunate that healthcare is that way, but it's the nature of the beast. 
And I think we're held back by that. And I think there's so many amazing things that pharmacists everywhere could be doing if we were able to expand the way we uh, should and provide the services that we are trained and prepared to provide everywhere um, because we were finally able to justify the positions that would allow us to, to do that. Yeah, Jennifer Adams on a much earlier episode always used the term practicing at the top of your education. And I prefer to use that, which is exactly what you're talking about here, because we are so trained to do more and we just aren't given the reins to do it. And it's, it can be very frustrating at times. Yeah. I always, I always mention it to students is over the past 20, 30 years, the requirements and education and training that has uh, been required of pharmacists has skyrocketed and basically climbed Mount Everest and the laws saying what we can do and how we can educate and, and uh, practice and provide care to our patients has really uh, risen on a slope consistent with your local metro park. You know, yeah. it, it has slowly climbed up, but the requirements have shot up. And it's something where there's such an issue with, increase, uh, with access to care right now where patients don't have the access they need, especially in those rural underserved communities, as you talked about earlier. And it's not a me- measure of, oh, pharmacists can replace physicians or anything like that. It's solely we can provide that complementary care, yep. that chronic disease management that really allows those patients to have increased access and better outcomes. And that's it at the end of the day. It's nothing that's to be self-serving or serve the profession of pharmacy. It's the, it's the fact that we see the data that shows that these types of programs improve patient outcomes. And it's, it's unfortunate that despite seeing that they provide better patient uh, care when we have a team-based complementary approach and increased access, that we're still not always able to get it enacted. Uh, so that would be the thing I would change. I know that's kind of a long, <laughs> long-winded answer. but So just to kind of keep this one short, uh, if you could change one law about pharmacy, federal or state, what would it be and why? Uh, if I could change a law, I, not, not to be redundant here, but I think that law would again, go back to uh, provider status and having that ability to uh, work with insurance and Medicaid and Medicare and bill for those services. I think I, I know I'm kind of using the same answer twice there, but I think that's so, so crucial. I think it's two different and angles of I this, of the same issue really, but yeah, no, one's a law, yeah. one's more of how it's perceived. I get it. Yeah. So I think, I think, I guess, I guess in my way to modify my answer, if there was a way to change, a thing to change about pharmacy beyond law, it's how pharmacy is perceived by the general public. And that's something I'm striving my entire career to hopefully change the perception of pharmacy and pharmacists um, so that people don't say, oh, what do pharmacists do? Or they say, well, why should you know about what this is being prescribed for? You're just, just my pharmacist or just right. a pharmacist. Yeah. Um, and to change that, and then from the law perspective, it would be having that having national provider status so we're able to change that perception, but also be doing the things and providing the care that are going to help our patients and really intrinsically change that perception by just doing it and showing people yeah. what you can do by adequately helping them and, and changing lives and saving lives. So I think that's that's kind of my spin there to change my uh, <laughs> answer, my double answer into two answers now. No, I get that. That's what a lot of people say who come on here. So, Dr. Arndt, you've been amazing. If people want to reach out to you, where can they find you? I know you're pretty big on Twitter. 
Well, I appreciate you saying I'm pretty big on Twitter. I don't know about that, but uh, hey, you've gotten way more Twitter. retweets than me on your one on your one tweet. Even if it wasn't about pharmacy, it was still pretty funny. Yes, my <laughs> I try hard to have nice, important, topical posts, and they do somewhat well. And my most popular was a stupid chemistry pun that I made. But that's <laughs> that's that's how, how Twitter works. But uh, I'm on Twitter at at Arndt Doctor. And then I have am available via email. If you just look me up, I'm uh, an assistant professor at UC, so my email's on the directory there. Um, it's arntdl at ucmail.uc.edu. Um, people are welcome to email me if they have thoughts, ideas, want to collaborate. I am very interested in all things pain management, opioid reduction, well-being and resiliency, and, and pharmacists and uh, pharmacists' work-life balance. Uh, so anything, anything in any of those lines, I am, uh, all for. Awesome. Hey, thanks again for joining me and listeners as you can share this episode. I think this is an important topic when it comes to trying to not just change our profession, but profession, but change the world in the way that we can help people access medications when they're needed and have them when they're needed. So as always, thanks for listening to the political pharmacist podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. Hey, listeners, there's a bill in Ohio that we didn't specifically talk about in this because we thought we want to keep it a little bit separate, but it was passed uh, earlier in 2020, and it was sponsored by uh, Representative Tim Ginter here in Ohio uh, regarding the use and how naloxone is used in the community. The Ohio State Board of Pharmacy is currently listening to public comments on this rule. Uh, the bill that passed was House Bill 341, and I'm going to put links in all the show notes. You can read up on that and submit comments to the state board. So if you're interested in this, please re- look into that, and thanks for listening to Political pharmacist podcast.